simply can't believe that this unconditional kind of love would be enough to take a filthy wretch like this have a mother of righteousness that's exactly what he did no matter church this morning. Please stand and join us as we begin our service by singing our praises to our almighty, good, and loving God together. Joyful, joyful, we adore you, God of glory, Lord of love, hearts unfold like flowers before you, opening to the Oh, 
Thank you. 
Father, we praise you for your call to us, that we can come to you when we're weary and burdened, that you will give us rest for our souls. We praise you that when we come, we can come with boldness. Through the blood of Jesus, we can come before your throne, the God and creator of all the universe. You will give us rest. We praise you, Father.
Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 13 and also Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And now Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him 
and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Take a minute and um, share a word of greeting with people here in worship this morning. Maybe introduce yourself to someone you don't know. So you want to notice that um, in that this next Sunday is the last Sunday to bring your boxes for Operation Christmas Child, and uh, so just uh, you can note that. And also, uh, we're continuing in the prayer vigil. Uh, we've had just about completed a week. I'm hearing some really good things from people. I know my experiences down there have been really positive. Hopefully, you've had a chance to uh, spend an hour in the prayer room. If not, I'm encourage you to do so. You can sign up uh, after the service in the back or. You can, uh, if you have a smartphone, you can click the little QR code on the insert in your bulletin or go online anytime. And uh, there, are, as I said before, there are lots of interactive things for you to do in the prayer room, a lot of ways in which you can uh, express yourself to God and listen to God. And uh, we are anticipating these next couple of weeks as we move forward. And uh, again, I, if you, if you uh, are, a, are an early morning or a late night person, you might like one of those uh, middle of the night hours. And uh, there's just a, a calm and a peacefulness there. Uh, I was talking with, this week, one of our uh, senior citizens, I don't know, I would guess he's probably 85, was in there at 2 in the morning. And uh, he said it was just so peaceful and had a great time uh, praying there in the prayer room. I, I'm by nature a pretty competitive person. Um, our family... When we get together, especially the extended family, though it's not limited to that, um, our game playing can get pretty intense. And in fact, we spend a lot of our time together playing games. And um, it gets a little crazy sometimes. If you ever have the opportunity to watch an Indiana basketball game with me, um, you would see how intense and competitive I have a tendency to be. I've, I've had to uh, uh, express apologies to more than one person through the years who happened to be at a game with me or watching a game with me and uh, go back later and say, I'm really sorry, I got so crazy about that. But th- there is this competitive streak that I suspect I'm not the only person here who wrestles with that. It's sort of a part of the culture in which we live, especially here in the West. We, you know, we, we most of our lives from being young to old are built on comparison and competition. I mean, what's the question? So what grade did you get? Right? You got out of school and it's, how much money do you make? How long have you been in this role? When do you get the next promotion? And we look at other people and we watch their journey through life and we think, wow, how come they get to do that and I don't? How come they're making that and I'm not? How come they have been blessed that way and I'm not? And there's this cultural mindset of, what success means, and success usually means I win and often you lose. And that mindset creeps into the church. Because more often than not, and the church talks about success, I mean, we don't like to talk about it this way, but this is the way it ends up playing out. It's about numbers. How many people do you have? How many people have you baptized? How many people have... Have you uh, have come to Christ? How many people come to Sunday school? How many people are involved in this? How many people are involved in that? I mean, quite frankly, even in the prayer vigil, you know, there's something in me that wants to say it's only a success if every single hour is filled. Instead of looking back after three weeks and saying, we just prayed 
We didn't pray 504 hours every hour, but we just had people praying for 350 hours. That's amazing. But that's not how our mind typically works. And in the church, we have this thing about numbers. And, and you know, it's not as though numbers are bad or they're evil. I mean, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, it says that a day Peter preached, and it says 3,000 people came to Christ. They mark it down. A little bit later, they, after they take care of the widows, it says daily, more and more people were being added to their number. They count numbers too, but it's not the core of how they view success. What if success is something entirely different? What if in the kingdom of God, success is not about winning? Success is not about competition or comparison. What if success is about things like faithfulness and truth and servanthood and surrender and sharing and love? I'm fascinated that in chapter 2, at the end of that, after, at the, actually at the end of chapter 4, Luke tells us this is what the church looks like. Everything they had, they shared in common. And what everybody, anyone owned, they didn't consider it as owning it. It belonged to everyone. They considered the church to be successful, to be what it was supposed to be, when what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. That's a different mindset than we're used to. You know, on the cross, Jesus makes this, the last words Jesus speaks on the cross are, it is finished. In other words, Jesus is saying, Father, I have been successful. I have done everything you wanted me to do. And as I as I breathe my last breath, I've been successful. And yet, we look at the life of Jesus, and I don't think we would typically judge that successful. Well, let's be honest. He's born in the wrong place to the wrong people. He spends the first 30 years of his life just laboring, probably in a carpenter shop. And then he only spends three and a half or so years actually doing the ministry that he came to do. And he doesn't heal everyone. He doesn't touch everyone. He stays in a pretty small area. And in fact, within that area, he stays in obscure villages most of the time. And when he does go to the center of power, he doesn't try to get the people in power to back him. He actually offends them. And the people he hangs out with are the people nobody wants to be around. All the outcasts and marginalized people of society... And the 12 that Jesus gathers around him, wow. You know, they got problems. They have issues. And then, and then you get to the, the end of his life, and he allows himself to be arrested and beaten and put on a cross. And I guarantee you, no one walked away from the cross on that Friday and thought to themselves, now that's success. Until Sunday. And on Sunday, everything changed. Jesus had a kingdom perspective about success. It is bigger than just this world. It is bigger than than how we tend to see it. The kingdom perspective of success is wider and longer and deeper and higher and greater than our typical way of viewing success. And somehow we have to grasp that. But it's hard. Because we tend to be people who are competitive. And we tend to struggle with envy and jealousy. And comparing ourselves to other people. We all wrestle with that. It's the human condition. You know, it's only been, it's only a a few uh, months prior to the events we're reading about today and the, and the Pentecost and all that with the disciples, the Holy Spirit coming on them. Only a few months before that, 
the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, can my boys be most important in your kingdom? And all the other disciples are really irritated about that. They are really upset. And I'm not so sure it's because that James and John's mother came and asked Jesus that. I think they're upset because their mothers weren't smart enough to think of it first. Mom, what are you doing to me here? Come on. I mean, they're arguing about who's the best because that's success to them. Until the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin to change their mindset and they start to understand the kingdom perspective that all of us wrestle with. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I, I have, a, well, you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world, as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you're still controlled by your sinful desires. And he says, you are jealous of one another and you quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like the people of the world? And when one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Paulus, aren't you acting just like people of the world? I mean, that's a struggle. I mean, we aren't the first ones to deal with that. It's hard. It, it, it goes against the nature of how we think. And yet it's the call of the kingdom. So what do we do? Let me make a couple of suggestions. I think we celebrate the success of other people even when We feel like they're being blessed and we're not. I think that's a part of being in the kingdom. Other people are are finding great blessings of God. Other people are finding, you know, good things happening in their lives. And the things aren't happening in our lives the way we want them to. And our natural tendency is to become envious and jealous of them. And in the kingdom, we're called to celebrate with them instead. And to rejoice with them. Because this loved child of God is seeing some good things happen in their life. But even for the best of people, that's hard. You know, there's an old legend from the 4th century of a hermit who uh, it said that the demons kept coming to him to try to, to tempt him into sin. And they couldn't get him, couldn't budge him anywhere. And he went back to Satan and said, we, have, we got nothing with this guy. He, he's just too deeply committed to Christ. He's too spiritual. And Satan said, okay, try this. Go tell him that his brother has just been chosen as the bishop of Antioch. And he went. They went and they told him that. He whispered that in his ear and immediately he started feeling jealous and envious. It's hard for us. And yet the call of the kingdom is to say, I got a bigger image of of what it means for the blessings of God to come into our lives. And I want to be able to celebrate your successes. I want to be able to celebrate your blessings. I want to, see, I want to be able to celebrate all the good things that are happening with you. Even if they aren't happening with me the way I want to. Let's move the circle a little bit bigger. In the kingdom, we celebrate the success of other ministries, even when the ministries we're passionate about don't seem to be as blessed as theirs are. That's hard for us too. You know, we feel passionate about a cause, a ministry, a focus. It's, a, it's part of our giftedness. It's part of how we see God at work. And, and we ought to be passionate about those ministries. And we ought to give ourselves to them. And, and nothing should change about that. But when what we're doing isn't, doesn't seem like it's being as blessed as what they're doing, we still celebrate what God is doing for them. And when their ministry isn't going quite as well as they might like, we lament with them. It's part of the call of 
of the faith. You know, you look at, at the, this 13th chapter of, of uh, Acts, and we hear the story of, of the, Luke says there are these four leaders in Antioch church, spiritual leaders. They are the cream of the crop. And God says to them, I'm going to choose Paul and Barnabas to do, for this special mission I have. And the other two have to be going, what, really? What? Wait, wait what's going on? And yet, by the time you get to the end of this, they're laying hands on Paul and Barnabas, they're praying for them, and they can't wait to hear the reports of what God is doing through them. And you get to Acts 18, and you have the story of Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, and Paul is preaching, and Priscilla and Aquila come into the picture, and they have a giftedness, and, they, and, and people listen to their word. And Paul could have been jealous, but he's not. He says, this is awesome. You guys keep preaching, and I'm going to go to the next place. And while they're working there, Apollos comes, and Apollos is this gifted orator, and people flock to him. But Priscilla and Aquila are not jealous of him. In fact, they take him in and say, let us help you. Let us help you be even more successful in the ministry that you have, that God's given you. And I want that kind of response. I want to be able to say to people, God is blessing what you're doing, and let me help you make that even better. And if that means that the things that I'm passionate about don't get the kind of attention, maybe don't get the funding in the budget, maybe don't get the publicity, that's okay. Because I want, to, I want to be a support to you, an encouragement to you, and I want to celebrate what you're doing. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, you know, some of you say, you know, I follow Paul and Apollos and Peter and all these things. And he says, here's the truth. I planted the seed and Apollos watered, but God made it grow. And so the reality is none of us take credit for any of the ministry success that we may see. It's all God's. And when you see it that way, you can much more easily celebrate what God is doing. But let me take it one more rung. It's not just about how we compare ourselves to other people. It's not how we compare our ministries. What about the church? In the kingdom of God, we celebrate the successes of other churches, even when it feels like they're being blessed and we're not. I have to tell you, this is a hard one for me because so much of how I think people view me is connected to what's happening in our church. When I go to ministerial gatherings, the questions are, so how are things at your church? And the temptation is to exaggerate the good and minimize the bad. Right? There is an issue of self-esteem that is a part of that. We didn't read this, but in Acts chapter 11, we discover that the church is exploding in Antioch, a town uh, up the coast uh, away from Jerusalem. And because of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, the Christians spread. And they go to, one place they go is Antioch, and the church is exploding there. And in fact, it's, Luke tells us, it's the first place they call followers of Jesus Christians. It's, it's becoming that, that big. And if you're in the Jerusalem church, you're thinking, now wait a second. The Christianity started here. The church started here with us. And, and we're the leaders, and, and we know more, and we've been at this longer and God, we're shrinking and Antioch is growing. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And then you find out in Romans 15 that Paul says the church in Jerusalem is having so much trouble that he's collecting an offering from all the other churches so that they can support the Jerusalem church that is struggling so much. And that had to be difficult for the Jerusalem Christians. Because, you know, a part of being the church is that you help other churches. They don't help you. And yet here they are doing that. And then you hear of Paul and Barnabas and others bringing reports to the Jerusalem church about what God is doing in places like Antioch and Rome and Corinth and, and Ephesus. And are they moping? No, they're celebrating. We may not be seeing it here, but the kingdom is bigger than us. We celebrate that. 
Fred Craddock tells of going back home one time to the little town in West Tennessee where he was born and raised and went to school. And, you know, he had, still had lots of connections there. And, and he would visit periodically. And he was back one time. And he was visiting with a friend. And they went to church together on a Sunday night. And it was, a, it was a beautiful service, this little church. And, you know, he had so many fond memories of being in this church. And he noticed they had new stained glass windows. And he was looking at all the different windows and admiring their beauty. And then he noticed that there were, there were little name plates on the windows. And, um, you know, this window was bought in honor of someone or was purchased by someone or in memory of someone. And he didn't recognize any of the names at all. And he thought, well, this is weird. I mean, I've been gone a little while, but I grew up here. I know people here. It's a little town. And so after the service, he said to his friend, I love the windows. They're beautiful. He said, but what's up with all the names? Are these all new people who have just moved to town recently? He said, no, that's an interesting story. He said, actually, these windows were ordered by a church in St. Louis from Italy. And when they arrived, they didn't fit. And so they decided they would sell them. And they sold them really cheaply. And we saw the ad and said, hey, we want windows. Let's buy them. So we bought them and we put them up. And Craddock said to his friend, okay, that's great. But what about all these names on here? They don't mean anything to you guys. What are you going to do about that? He said, you know, we, we thought about that. And we talked about it. And we decided we would leave them. Because a little church like ours needs to be reminded regularly that there are a lot of other Christians in the world not just us. And I think there's something profound about that mindset of the kingdom. We're going to start next week praying for a different ministry in the church every Sunday and praying for a different area church every Sunday. Because we need to do that. We need to celebrate what God is doing here and in other places Because it's good for us. It's what it means to be in the kingdom and have a bigger kingdom perspective than we often have. And we're praying that God will bless them. And I do think prayer is a big part of getting over the hurdle of our envy and our jealousy and our competitiveness and our comparisons. You know, in this this 13th chapter of Acts, after God puts his finger on Paul and Barnabas and the other two guys are there going, so what about us? In, in the version that I have, the New Living Translation, it says in verse 3, after more prayer and fasting, they laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out. I think that's significant. I think it takes those guys who are not chosen some time to come to, to, come to grips with that and to celebrate the fact that Paul and Barnabas are chosen and that's okay. And we're good with that. But give me a minute. Because human nature doesn't just do that. So what do they do? They fast. They pray. And out of that time of prayer, their hearts get changed. And now they can celebrate. And I'm convinced that one of the most important ways of of seeing the kingdom as it is, the bigger kingdom, is to spend time praying about the bigger kingdom. And to just say things. Pray for thanksgiving on the people who are being blessed and the ministries are being blessed and the churches are being blessed. And the more we pray that, the more it becomes real to us. And it may be sort of like we have to do with forgiveness we talked about last week. We may be able to say, Lord, thank you for blessing them. Let it continue. But maybe our first prayer is, Lord, help me to want to pray, thank you for blessing them and let it continue. And maybe it's, Lord, help me to want to want to pray. Thank you for blessing them and let that continue. Because it's hard. It's a struggle for us. But the great thing, the thing that I've found is that people who are envious and jealous and are always thinking about comparing and competitive tend to not be the most joyful people in the world. They tend to be people who are, who you find at the heart of backbiting and rumors and anger and bitterness. It's the people who can celebrate others' successes that we want to hang around because they're joyful 
and they're happy and they've learned something that we haven't learned. And I am convinced that at the heart of that mindset is a realization that we are loved by our Heavenly Father, period. When you know you're loved by God unconditionally, you don't have to compete. Does it mean we're less passionate about what we believe in? No. We're, we're even more passionate about, our, about growing as Christians. And we're even more passionate about our ministries and more passionate about our church. It's just not in the spirit of envy and jealousy about other churches and people and ministries. But it comes from knowing that we are loved unconditionally by God. You go back to the parable of the prodigal son. And, you know, the elder brother, he's jealous and envious that his younger brother gets this party despite everything he's done. But the real root of the issue, I don't think it's jealousy. The real root of the issue is that he's not convinced that his father really loves him, even if he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. Even if he isn't the good boy. His father loves him, period. I actually think he wrestled with that. I don't think he wants his father to be that gracious. He wants a formula. He wants to be able to say, look, you earn love. You don't just get it. And you earn love by being good like me, not like being bad like him. And the father keeps trying to tell him that's not the way the kingdom works. That's not how God is because ultimately at some point, we are going to need grace. Because grace isn't just for other people. Grace is for all of us. And God who is gracious and merciful and generous with his grace isn't contingent. It's not like we have some contract with God that God, I'll, you, you, I'll be good and then I'll know you love me. That's God saying, I love you. Now, go work for the kingdom. And there is a difference between saying, I do work for the kingdom so that God will look favorably on me versus God always looks favorably on me so I'll go do work for the kingdom. Does God always like what we do? No. But we're his children. And as his children, he loves us. And we have to grasp that somehow to get that into our minds. It can change us. It will change us. Somehow to see a bigger perspective of the kingdom that it's not just me and my things or us and our things. It's everyone. We're all in this together. That's when Paul says, you know, we rejoice with each other and we sorrow with each other. Your pain's my pain. Your joy is my joy. And my pain is your pain. And my joy is your joy. That's the kingdom. And it's harder. It's a lot easier just to say, I'm just going to think about myself. I'm just going to worry about myself. I got a lot to do about myself. But that's not how the kingdom's designed. Because we need each other. And we need to encourage each other. We need to help each other. You know, I, I have this love-hate relationship with group projects. You know, I don't know how you feel about group projects, but, you know, I, I love, I have a fondness for group projects because it was in a group project that Cindy and I became really good friends and out of that our romance blossomed and eventually our marriage. So I do have this really soft spot in my heart for group projects. But when it comes to the educational part of it, nah, not so much. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're an overachiever, group projects are the bane of your existence, right? If you're an underachiever, yeah, you can, okay, I can live with that because they're going to do the work and I'll sit back and let it go. But those group projects where it's clear what everyone ends up doing, and the thing is, everybody gets the same grade. It really grates at fairness, right? And we hate that. Because I did more work than they did. I was more involved than they were. But here's the thing about group projects. If you know everybody's going to get the same grade, pay a lot more attention to how well everybody else is getting stuff. Because when they stand up to give their part of the project, 
You want them to succeed. And so when you're in a group project, you pay attention. Are you getting it? Can I help you? What do you need? And you work with each other. When it's not a group project, yeah, you might have a study group. You might, you might do that, but you're not really thinking about, I've got to pull them up by their bootstraps. You're just thinking about your own self. And here's what I'm discovering more and more. The kingdom of God is a lot more like a group project than we think. I'm not saying it's totally that. But I think it's a lot more than we often realize. And my question for us today is, can we, re- can we believe that our Heavenly Father loves us unconditionally? And recognizing that and embracing that, we start seeing not just ourselves, but everybody else and every other ministry and every other church the way he does. I'm convinced that that has a lot to do with how the kingdom views success. Holy Father, give us new eyes about your kingdom. Help us to value success the way you do. Father, this morning we we come and offer our prayers for the needs and the burdens in this church and beyond. Some of us here today are wrestling with guilt. Help us to sense your forgiveness. Some of us are wrestling with decisions about the future. Fill us with your wisdom. Some of us are are struggling with a relationship that's going sideways. Give us the ability to forgive and talk and to be humble. Lord, some of us are dealing with issues of health. And we pray for your healing grace upon every person who is struggling with illness and pain and disease and injury. Lord, we pray more than just for ourselves. Think about this world. Think about our nation. We're moving into Veterans Day this week and We probably don't, aren't grateful enough for all the people who've sacrificed so that we have freedom. We thank you for them. And even as we thank you for those people, we pray that in your grace, you will continue to bring peace in the midst of war. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who don't have the kind of freedom that we have. Think especially of the churches in Indonesia. Churches are being burned and threatened. and There's a lot of fear and anxiety. Bring peace to our brothers and sisters. May they witness your grace to those who are terrorizing them. And through their witness, may their enemies and their opponents see the truth about you and open their hearts to you. Do this miracle. We pray for the Trudells and their work with Wycliffe in Africa and ask that your blessing would be upon their ministry as they work in linguistics and development and, and, and sharing your grace and, and Christ in a variety of ways. Give them strength and wisdom and all that they need. Father, we pray for this prayer vigil. Thank you for a positive week as we move into the second week. Keep working, Lord. Let your glory descend on this prayer room that every one of us who goes in may sense you there and walk out different than we entered. Father, thanks for hearing our prayers today. 
as you always do. As your children, may we know the depths of your love for us, unconditional love. May we be stirred to new thoughts, new attitudes, new actions for your kingdom. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As we respond to God through our worship, let's begin by giving back to him through our tithes and offerings.
Love children of God. May you go from this place to serve and to celebrate the kingdom and our Lord Jesus Christ who is with you.